Thank you uh, for singing with us. Uh, would you join me, uh, Matthew, book of Matthew, chapter 11. This will be our second week in Matthew, chapter 11. Um, I do realize uh, it kind of dawned on me, well, we got a lot of visitors this morning, and uh, a lot of them about the same age. And so... Uh, if you are with the local university, I'm assuming several of you are with Anderson University or perhaps moved in here from another area uh, to go to Tri-County soon or perhaps Clemson or something else like that. Uh, first of all, let me say welcome. Kick your shoes off. Make yourself comfortable. Um, and I hope someone has told you about the rule. We do have one main rule uh, for our visitors. It's if you come once, you have to come 49 more times. After that, after that, you'll be able to make an educated guess if we're the right church for you or not. So we'll plan on seeing you next week, Lord willing. Uh, no, for real. Thank you for coming. Uh, you'll get a little bit of a flavor of what we're about uh, this morning. We have been going through the book of Matthew for a, quite a while, and you'll see we're not doing it like a chapter, a week, anything like that. We're doing just basically a paragraph at a time. And we started about a year and a half ago, and this is how far we are. We're in chapter number 11. Um, but we try to hear from the Lord, and it is always up to the Lord uh, to reveal His Word to us, to open it to us, uh, and even to speak it. Uh, so this morning, as much as ever, uh, literally as much as ever, uh, it is totally up to the Lord what, what He shows us from His Word today. I don't have anything for you, uh, but I hope the Lord does. Uh, so Matthew chapter number 11. Last week, we looked at verses 1 through 6. What I need to do today is actually back up because this is a continuation. I need to back up and read verse 2 through 6 again, and then we'll get a running start to verse 15. So verses 7 to 15 are actually our text, as you see on the handout. If you missed last week for any reason, you may want to go back uh, and listen to that, that service, not because of who preached it or anything. I remember last week admitting to you that I didn't like those six verses. I didn't think I was going to get much out of them, but the longer the week went, the Lord showed us more and more. I used the, the phrase that is just going to be lots of teaching last week. There ended up being more preaching points than I thought. I say that for this reason. This week is really going to be even more teachy, teaching-oriented than last week's was, and so there will be fewer preaching points. You say, Jeff, how do you know this? I challenge you, when we get to verses 7 through 15, always try to note how many times does the text give us an action step. That's one of, those are your preaching points, right? How many action steps? So you could make an argument that there's only one action step, but lots of informational pieces. And so that's why I would say, let's prepare ourselves for a portion of Scripture that we need to learn in verse 15... 14.15 should tell us that this is an important section. Really, verse 11 as well. Here we go. Back to verse 2. Now, when John, this is John the Baptist. When John heard in prison. John's in prison because he preached and told Herod the Tetrarch, this is the son of Herod the Great, that Herod, you're in the wrong for stealing your half-brother's wife, Herodias, and divorcing your own wife so that you can marry your sister-in-law. He kept on telling him that that was sinful, and finally Herod the Tetrarch, uh, the, the Roman Tetrarch, had had enough, and he puts John in prison. And I can't re-preach all of last week. That would take too long. But notice, 
when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ. So watch. Here we are, by the way. Get used to my hand motions this morning. They're going to be especially important. I'm going to try to remember to do a timeline from your perspective. So I'm going to go, be flipped for me, left to right. So we have older time. I'm going to kind of deal with this section. And then we're going to have this church age that we're in. And then if we were to look to the future. All right. So John is here in prison. This is in the 20s of the first century. Here's Matthew in the 60s talking about what was happening back in the 20s when John was in prison. And Matthew has the great perspective and says, John, back in the 20s, heard about the deeds of the Christ. So Matthew says, he's the Christ. John's going to get a little iffy and a little doubtful if he's the Christ. But Matthew has no doubt. Look at verse 2 again. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ... He sent word by his disciples, two of John's disciples, according to Luke and Mark. John, somehow, I don't know if it's through the guards, through a ladder, face-to-face, through the cell, how it's working, but John's in prison. And he sends word through two of his disciples and said to, to go ask Jesus, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And these two disciples come up to Jesus and ask. John's been hearing some things. Are you the one or do we look for another? Let me pause right there and just very briefly recap. There's probably some things about what John heard that Jesus was doing that's just not fitting with his expectation of the Messiah. John's in prison. He's been telling everyone that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the anointed one. Remember today, those those three terms are interchangeable. He's the prophesied Christ, the prophesied Messiah, the prophesied anointed one. John's been saying Jesus is him, but something, as he's in prison, keeps getting these reports about what Jesus is doing. It's confusing him. It's not meeting his expectation. I contended last week that as much as what Jesus is doing, it's what he's not doing. John knows that when the Messiah comes, and he's been saying it's Jesus, he's going to set up a visible kingdom. And he's going to pour out the Holy Spirit on believers. And he's going to judge unbelievers with fire. So in John's mind, Jesus, who he's been saying is the Christ, has gone over three. He's not set up a kingdom. He has not poured out the Holy Spirit on believers. And he's not judged unbelievers in fire. And yet John knows this is to happen. God has told him this. Go ask him, is he the one or shall we look for another? So here they come, verse 4. Jesus answered them. He doesn't rebuke. He doesn't get angry. He just says, go, tell John what you hear and see. This tells me John hasn't heard Jesus preach. John hasn't seen Jesus' miracles. And so these two guys now having heard Jesus teach and preach and then seeing what they're going to see, notice verse 5. You go tell John what you hear and see. And here it is. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And oh, by the way, verse 6, don't forget this. Make sure you tell John this. Blessed is the one who's not offended by me. That, what that means is God has some confusing ways. They're coming. We've all had them, and there's going to be more. When we encounter the confusing ways of God, not the glorious ways of God, we love those. It's these confusing ways of God. Don't be offended Don't be downcast. Don't become bitter. Don't become angry. Keep your faith. 
He doesn't rebuke John for an honest question. He's just saying, don't cross the line. Don't get offended at me. Now this week's text, verse 7 to 15. So here's these two guys. Ask their question. Jesus performs miracles according to Luke. That hour he began doing many, many miracles. And so these guys see this fresh hand. Go tell John what you saw and heard, verse 7. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Uh, this, uh, This is not my message. Can I throw this in? Why does Jesus wait till they're leaving? Why doesn't he say what he says in their hearing? He's going to heap, Jesus is going to heap some pretty high praise on the apostle John. But he doesn't do this until these guys are leaving. I, all I can guess, and you may have your own, you may have additional thoughts. I'm wondering if it's because, though it's high praise and it is true of John, he, maybe he doesn't want John's two disciples to stay too attached to John rather than attaching to Jesus. Maybe that's why he doesn't let them hear this. Or maybe he doesn't want John to hear what he's going to say because human pride in John, which is not completely eradicated yet, may take this too much to heart and think too highly of himself. Or maybe what he's going to say in the second part of verse 11 could be even more confusing in John, and he doesn't want John to be you know, distraught or confused by that. So... But verse 7, as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And he asked them three rhetorical questions. The answer is implied. It's understood. First question, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? Guys, I'm imagining it's, let's just say you were that crowd that day. It's as though Jesus says, hey, now that they're gone. How many of you have heard John, hand, heard John preach? By a show of hands, how many have heard John preach? Okay, good. A lot of you. You went down to the wilderness. You live in Galilee. You don't just like stumble into the wilderness. By the way, don't picture this wilderness as like really, really big tall trees or really dense forests. These are desert mountains, brown desert mountains down in Judea. If you're going to go hear John preach, you went out of your way. You just didn't happen to, oh, there's John the Baptist. Let's go pull up a chair. This is great. I'll, I'll take a lemonade. This is wonderful. I've heard about it. No, that's not what you did. You went out of your way. So now verse 7, Jesus says, you've heard him preach. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? Now, really, why did you go to the wilderness? What did you go see? A reed? A little cane stalk of grass shaken by the wind? Did you go to see something? I think there's two thoughts, and I'll hit them in a moment. Did you go see just a stalk of grass blowing in the wind? You can see that anywhere. That's very, very common. No, you didn't go see a stalk of grass. Verse 8. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing, luxurious, bright-colored, easily picked. Again, fancy clothing. Is that why you went out to the wilderness, to the desert, to see a man dressed in soft clothing? They know that no one would go to see John preach if you're looking for a fashion statement. Behold, Jesus says, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. That's for palaces, not for the wilderness. And now Jesus dials it in even more, verse 9. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Did you go out to see? They'd be sitting there. No, we didn't go see a cane stalk of grass. No, we didn't go see a man dressed in bright, luxurious clothing. Did we go see a prophet? That's why we went. And Jesus says, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I tell you, and more than a prophet. Now that they're gone... Let me tell you who John is. A prophet, yes, and more than a prophet. 
How's he more than a prophet? Verse 10. This is he of whom it is written. Their master, their teacher that they're going to go see in prison. Let me tell you who he is. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, now Jesus quotes an Old Testament prophecy. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He fulfills that. And if that wasn't enough praise, then Jesus really heaps it on in verse 11a. Truly, I say to you, among those born of women, and that's just a code way of saying those who've had a natural birth, born of women naturally. I think Jesus is excluding very clearly. So again, we're on our timeline. We're looking at this direction. We're at John Jesus, late 20s AD, and we're looking backward till the beginning of time. We know that this excludes Adam. He wasn't born of a woman. Eve was not born of a woman. And Jesus did not have a natural birth. And so taking those out, Jesus says, Truly I say unto you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. What a statement. No one greater. From here all the way back, no one greater than John the Baptist. Now I may be playing too too much into the words, but I don't know that Jesus has said fully, he's the greatest of all the ones born of women. That may be what it means, quite possibly, and maybe even probably what he means. But the way he words it is, no one greater has arisen than him. No one greater. Yet. Look at the next word. Yet. So here back, no one greater. Yet, the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. All the way back there, no one greater. Yet, he who is least in the kingdom is greater than he. And as if that wasn't confusing enough, verse 12 is really tough. Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, Jesus talking in the 20s, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Let me read that again. For all the prophets, again, they didn't have the New Testament. He's talking about their Bible, the written word of God, and the prophets who spoke verbally. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and then Jesus says, to his people at that live moment, and if you are willing to receive it, he, John, is Elijah, who is to come. And now here we have our action statement. Here's our one preaching point, which now will set the stage for the rest of it. Jesus finishes all of that by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Which means, he who has been given understanding of the truth that Jesus teaches that is veiled to some, whoever God gives understanding and spiritual ears to hear spiritual things, then let him hear, let him think, let him meditate, let him receive the word of God. And so this morning, I'm going to go ahead and admit to you, it's going to get real teaching here. And you may say, I don't really need to know about John the Baptist. Then I might answer that and say, oh yeah, look at chapter 11, verse 11, the first part of the verse, and say, maybe I do need to pay attention to what the Bible has to say about John the Baptist. So this text, uh, there's lots of ways to go at it. The way my mind went this week is, man, I, I think we should deal with four questions. So we have four questions that our text raises for us this morning. Number one, what made John great? What made John great? What is it? 
MacArthur writes in his commentary of this section the following, and I want to challenge you. I think this is a pretty exhaustive list. There's maybe some more. This is a pretty good quote. That's why I'm using it. Okay. MacArthur writes the following. He says, The world has many standards by which it measures greatness. These standards include, again, I think pretty good list. How does the world, the world that we live in, how does it measure greatness? These standards include intellectual achievement, political, and military leadership, scientific, and medical discoveries, wealth. Why is that person great? Wealth and power. Why is that person great? Because they're very powerful. They tell people, a lot of people what to do. They have a really big company. A lot of people have to obey what they do. They're very, very powerful. And then, of course, we can't forget these last four that he tacks on because a lot of us, this is how we describe or measure greatness. He says, and athletic, dramatic, literary, and musical skill. And so this is, that person is extremely intelligent. They're great. That person has risen to political power. Look how great they are. This is a tremendous military leader who has conquered other people. Look at the discovery, this scientist or in the medical field. This one's super wealthy. They're great. That one's powerful. How many of us have not had debates? Even we have lists and we have this discussion now. Who's the greatest of all time? Athletically. Our favorite actor. Actress, and some of you are like, I actually have a list on my, my favorite actors. This one, second. Okay, we debate. These are the greatest. Those are the greatest athletes in the particular field. Heard a debate about that just last night, and it's going on even this morning. Literary. Who's the best authors? Who plays musical instruments the best? Who has the best vocals? Y'all heard my opinion a few years ago, and I won't give it again this morning. I'll spare you. Whitney Houston. Anyway, moving on. All right. What made John great? Number one, John was a prophet. John was great because John was a prophet. And again, I want to encourage you, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let him listen. Let him think. Don't just think, boy, I, I went to Graceview and I, I didn't get seven things, seven steps that are going to, you know, immediately impact my life on Monday. Let's learn the word of God. John was great because John was a prophet. Look again at verse number 7. As they went out, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. Why then did you go out into the wilderness to see? Did you go to see a reed shaken by the wind? Again, what he's saying is you didn't go to see something common. And you didn't go. I think this is the main point. You didn't go to see someone who's like a stalk of grass who just sways wherever the wind of public opinion moves. That's a lot of politicians today and a lot of preachers. What are they like? That's what I'll do. That, unfortunately, that's what our country seems to want, is give us somebody who will always be doing polls, and they'll go with the polls. And I would prefer someone who just says, this is the way I am, and that way I can say, you know what? I appreciate that. Or you know what? I don't like that, and so I'm not going to vote for you. But be real. Don't just always be wishy-washy. Here's the point. Did you, when you went to see John, did you go to see a man who was going to vacillate and cave in and soften his message depending on the crowd? If you did, you got a rude awakening because John never softened his message. Pharisees, he tells them like it is. Scribes and lawyers, he tells them like it is. Herod, he tells him like it is. It gets him thrown in jail. It doesn't matter. John just preaches straight. Verse number 8. Second question, what then did you go out to see? Did you go see a man dressed in soft clothing, like someone who would wear in a palace? If so, you were sorely disappointed. You don't go to the desert to see someone wearing fancy clothes. Here's what this tells me. I don't want to make too much of it, but I want to learn a lesson for myself. John... 
This is what Jesus is saying. He wore rough camel hair and a leather belt like Elijah in the Old Testament. Same, same wardrobe. I think the point is John, John didn't get dressed up. If you go to see a fashion statement, wonder what John's going to be wearing this week. Same thing he wore last week. And it's very unimpressive. So here's something that I've learned, and I'll probably mention this just because of my particular background. This tells me it really is possible to have a message from God and preach it publicly without wearing nice clothes. It can be done. Without, no, 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 you, you got to have your Sunday... Ba- Actually, I think this is probably the fanciest outfit of all weeks. I think this is the fanciest out- outfit of my, like, six or seven that I rotate. Um, the point is, what John is wearing is not important. What John is saying is extremely important. Verse number nine. What then did you go out to see then? If you didn't go to see that or that, what did you go see? A prophet? Yes. You went to see... So if you're taking notes, write this down. People went out of their way to the Judean wilderness desert to hear a man named John boldly declare the truths that God had revealed directly to him. By the way, I could say that's the definition of a prophet. A prophet is one who receives a direct revelation message from God and boldly declares it as from God, not wondering about softening the message for his particular audience, just straight. In other words, these people's attitude, when you go to see John, you expect John, give it to us straight, tell us the truth. And what I'm looking at in verses 7, 8, and 9 is Jesus is saying, the Son of God is giving the highest validation saying, Hey, Israel, you haven't had a prophet for 400 years. You've got one now. And that's why he's great. Number two, John was not only great because he was prophet, but because he was more than a prophet. Notice verse number 9. What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, and I tell you, more than a prophet. How are you more than a prophet? Either you are or you're not. I'm going to offer the following. Okay? Watch. All prophets receive revelation from God. All prophets receive revelation from God. John had his. John knows about the will of God, the ways of God. He knows about the kingdom of God. And he's, he's going to reveal things about the very Christ, who is the Messiah. So they all get these things. But what separates John, one of the things that makes him so unique that the others don't really have, watch this, is that John doesn't just receive revelations and prophecies, and John doesn't just make prophecies, watch, John fulfills prophecies. He's so unique and so great that other prophets, namely Isaiah and Malachi, they prophesy about him. So where they all, John included, prophesy about the Christ. And by the way, I am not saying there's the Christ and there's John. No, the gap between the two is great. But what Jesus is saying is these other prophets prophesied about John. He gave prophecies and he fulfilled prophecies. Particularly, it was predicted that he would be the forerunner who would precede the Christ. Go back one book in your Bible. Go back one book, Malachi chapter 3. So you see, verse number 10, Jesus says that this is he. Let me move my marker. In verse number 10, Jesus says, you want to know how he's more than a prophet? This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Where in the world did that come from? Jesus is saying, John is the one who fulfills the prophecy of Malachi chapter 3, verse number 1. The Bible says this. 
Old Testament, 400 years previous, behold. Jesus says, y'all know this prediction? You remember hearing this? John is the one who fulfills it. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, you delight in the covenant, that messenger, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Jesus says, John is that messenger. Very quickly, go back to chapter 11 of Matthew. Hold your spot there. Can I point your attention to verse number 13? Again, I told you we're very teachy today, but I'm going to pray. I've already been praying that the Holy Spirit will keep us engaged and teach us. Look at verse 13. Watch the connection that Jesus makes. This is why he's more than a prophet. But they're all prophets. How is he more than a prophet? Verse 13. Very important. For all the prophets... And the law prophesied until John. Catch it again. For all the prophets, a little unique order. It usually goes law and prophets. Jesus says, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. That tells me something. tells me two things. He's including John with the prophets and the law. For, the, for, the, for the prof, all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. So he's with them. But then I notice this word until John. So wait a minute. John is lumped with the Old Testament prophets. We could say he's the last Old Testament prophet. And yet they prophesied fresh prophecies. Each one lives and dies and they bring new information. This is going to be a, a fact to look for about the Christ and this prophecy. And put them all together, some 300. And then comes John, who's kind of the last of the Old Testament prophets. But at the same time, he's the first of the New Testament prophets. So in him... Old and new meet in the ministry of John. He's a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. Why is John great? Number three. Look at verse number 11. Here's what we find. He's great because no Old Testament saint was greater than John. What an amazing statement. This is where I'm reading this this week, and I realize... And I won't have you raise your hand because some of you, if you're honest, would have to raise your hand like I would. How many of us have been guilty of underestimating John the Baptist? How many of us have been guilty of putting other well-known characters in the Old Testament ahead of John the Baptist? I've been guilty. If you would have interviewed me before this past week, I've read this before. I've thought about it a little bit, never really studied it, never preached it. If you had asked me, I would have put Abraham above him, Moses above him, David above him, and no doubt some others, Samuel, and some, like Elijah, I probably would have put those guys above him. Jesus, listen, Jesus doesn't do that. And that tells me I've really blown it up till now. I've got to readjust my thinking. I need to pay attention to this text because Jesus is saying is none of them are above John the Baptist. He's that important. So what makes him so important? If you're taking notes, you can start the note. It'll not be completely on the screen yet. Moses gives us the law. Very important. Moses gave us the law, and in the law, what do we learn? We learn the ways of God, and the will of God, and the commands, and the demands of God. And we also learn that we're very sinful, and our sinfulness is exposed. So Moses gives us the law by which we learn that we are sinners. We see our sin. But John, he doesn't just show us our sin. John shows us the Savior. And so Jesus says, there's a lot of great ones. John is not behind any of them. None of them are greater than John. Can I just interject this? 
I read verse number 11. Among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John. I don't, it might be this. I don't think this means John the Baptist was more holy and more godly and more faithful. Maybe that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, y'all don't know him. This guy is the holiest, the most godly, the most sanctified, separated. Maybe. But I don't think it's, I don't think it means he's the most talented. To our knowledge, he never wrote a book. Some of them did. He never performed a miracle. Some of them did. I don't think that's where he's greater. So we have to ask ourselves, then what is it that makes him greater? Let's continue the note and write it down this time. John was greater. Jeff, what makes him greater? He was greater because his prophecy. Everybody with me? Here it is. His prophecy was clearer than anybody before him. His prophecy was more specific than anyone before him. And that is why I believe Jesus is saying none of them are greater than John. John's prophecy, John's revelations that he's preaching are clearer. They're much more specific. Jeff, what do you mean? For thousands of years, people have been saying the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Look for this. Look for this. Look for this. Keep giving us details and clues and hints. And we're building them up. And the Jews like the good positive things. They're kind of blind and ignore the the negative things that, that they don't like being said about their coming king and Messiah. But he's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Here's John. He's here. Why is John greater? He doesn't say he's coming. He's coming. He says he is here. Oh, by the way, he's the son of God. He has clearer, more specific. He's here. He's the son of God. He's the lamb of God. Oh, by the way, he's that man right there. His name is Jesus. Which one is he? He's that man right there. He's the son of Mary, the adopted son of Joseph, the carpenter from Nazareth. That is the Christ. Over here, all these guys. He's coming. He's coming. He's going to be born this way. He's going to be born here. He's going to go down into Egypt. He's going to do this. He's going to have this ability and that ability. John says, that's him right there. He's greater. Very specific. Oh, you don't have to wonder anymore. It's Jesus. He's the Messiah. Number two. So the second part of verse 11 throws us another question that, again, if I was teaching school, I would pose to you and we'd pause and I'd let you answer. Why is John not greater than New Testament believers? So if none of those people are greater... Why is John not greater, watch, than New Testament believers? Why is he not greater than us? Wait a minute. If he's that, if he's that, then surely he's got to be. How would you answer that? How is John not greater than us? I would answer perhaps this way. Look at verse number 11. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Hang with me. Remember John's message? Does everybody remember it? What's the first word? One word? Starts with the R. Repent. And then be baptized. And then he says, live a life. So repent. Literally change your mind. Change your mind about the way you think. Repent. See yourself and see your sin differently than you ever have before. And then get baptized as a sign. Why why are you getting baptized? Because I'm an adulterer. I'm a drunk. I'm a thief. Get up there and confess and then go. By the way, John's baptism is not the same baptism that these young people experience today. 
It's entailed in that. Theirs was a confession that they are sinners and they put their faith and trust in Christ. John's was you better repent about your sin and then get baptized. And oh, by the way, go live a life that proves you really did repent of your sin. Why? Now, let's come back to John's message. I don't have time to read it. Do you remember it, though? Repent for the... Why? For the kingdom of heaven is... Two words. At hand. Watch. Repent. Get baptized. Live a life that shows you've really repented. Why? Because the kingdom of heaven. Here's what he's saying. Israel, your Messiah, your Christ, he is here and the kingdom is at hand. At hand. Interesting word. Look at verse 11 at the end. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom. I think those two, that two-letter two word is extremely important. Yet the least, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. So John's message is, hey, Israel, Jews, your Messiah is here and the kingdom is at hand. And yet Jesus says, as great as John is, those who are actually in the kingdom are greater than John. What does that tell me? Though John in him, the Old Testament and the New Testament connect in the ministry of John, it seems to me that what Jesus is saying is John is at the very cusp of the kingdom, but John's not actually in the kingdom. And so those who are in the kingdom, all of them are greater than John. He's, he's still on the outside, not fully in the fully operational, even the spiritual aspect of the kingdom. And so that tells me something about how Jesus is gauging greatness. can offer this. Jesus is measuring greatness, watch, by proximity to him. Who's the greatest? Jesus is measuring greatness by closeness to him. Why is John greater than? Because he's closer to me. Then how are these people? Because of their proximity. Watch. Jesus is measuring greatness by knowledge of him. Not just knowing facts about Jesus. This is important. Jesus measures greatness by knowing him. You say, well, John knew him. John did know him, and John knew some things about him. John knew more about Jesus than everybody before him. But John didn't know what we know. So, Jeff, what do you mean? The reason that those who are actually in the kingdom, even the least, you say, well, I guess the least of us live more godly lives and holy and separated faithful lives than John. No, no, that's not the reason. We know that's not. He was extremely faithful. The reason that all of us are put in a category of greater is because we have greater enlightenment. John had greater enlightenment than all those before him, so he, nobody's greater than him. But the least in the kingdom has greater enlightenment than John had. had. You say, Jeff... What do you mean? Watch. Every person for the last 2,000 years who is going to go to heaven by faith in Christ, watch, they all know that Jesus, this man, that's his human name, Joshua Jesus of Nazareth, they all know he's the Messiah Christ. You say, well, that's what was so special about John. I know. All Christians know this. But all Christians know that Jesus died. Had you interviewed John... He would have been clueless that the Messiah, Christ, was going to die. He's confused. Why haven't you set up the kingdom yet? Why haven't you poured out the Holy Spirit? Why haven't you poured out judgment? All of us know Jesus died. More than that, we know that he died on a cross. 
We know that while he was dying on the cross, he was bearing the sins of the world. And we know that when he was bearing the sins of the world, God the Father was punishing him and that God was seeing his death as a sufficient, satisfying payment for all the sins of the world. And everyone who's in this category, they also know not only that he died and he died on a cross and it was satisfying to the Father, but the way you have eternal life is by putting your faith in Jesus' death on the cross. John knows none of that. All believers, you say, well, what if there's some believers who don't know about Jesus dying on the cross and pay for their sin? Then they're not a Christian. All Christians know this, and that's what separates us. It's not that we're inherently better. We're in a more enlightened time period than he lived. William Barclay words it this way. Barclay writes, John had never seen the cross. Real simple. Somebody tell me real quick and say it out loud. Why did John never see the cross? Because he, he died. He died in prison. Had his head cut off. Catch what Barclay says. I'm going to skip around and make one big quote out of several splices, okay? For flowing's sake. Ready? He writes, John had never seen the cross. Therefore, so he's going to draw a pretty good conclusion... Therefore, one thing that John could never know was the full revelation of the love of God. Then Barclay says, the man who, this is us over here, the man who has seen the cross has seen the heart of God in a way that no man who lived before the cross could ever see it. They could never see it. Guys, I want to shoot straight with you. I'll guarantee you this is true. In our city, I think we have like 29,000, 30,000 people. I don't know how many is in our county. I am quite confident there are hundreds, if not thousands of people in Anderson, city, county, thousands, watch, who believe that there is a God, one God. They believe this. And, and by the way, not all believe that, but these people believe, but here's the kicker, they don't actually know God. But they believe that there is a God and, watch, they believe that He is a loving God. In fact, in their belief system, His love is His primary attribute. High above, outranking, and if need be, overpowering all of His other attributes. You say, preacher, is that what you believe? I do not believe that. I do not believe His love overpowers all the others. And just says, don't worry about that. I'm letting everybody come to heaven. If his love overpowered everything, then everybody gets to go to heaven. And it would be squelching out his holiness and his justness. So we don't believe. But there's people in Anderson County who they think the number one thing about God is his love. It over, and here's how, here's how they apply it. He loves us no matter what we may do or no matter what we may not do. But what if you don't ever accept Christ? It doesn't matter. He's going to love us. He'll forgive us no matter what. No matter what we do, no matter what we don't do. He's going to love us. He's going to forgive us. Here's the attitude. They wouldn't say it, but it's underlying. It's his job. He has to forgive us. He's loving. They love John 3.16, A. Love John 3.16, A. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Love that. God gave He loves us that much. He gave his son and he died on the cross. Yeah, but do you know the rest of that? That whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. No, we don't believe that perishing. He's loving, so they're wrong. You say, Jeff, why did you just do all that? I'm pretty sure if we would rewind 2,000 years ago, 
hardly anybody would have that view of God. You say, was God not loving in that time period? He was, but no one would have gone around. You know, you know what people thought back then? The gods, plural. They're mad and they're angry and we've got to keep them happy. You, jump in the fire pit. See if, I don't, see if I, there's a commercial out there. The guy's got to jump in the fire pit. Is it going to rain? Like, I don't want to. What if we just like run some irrigation? Anyway, y'all know the commercial I'm talking about. It's kind of funny. Um, no one thought back then. I just think God's this loving creature. No, he's just, he's wrathful. They're twisted the other way. You say, Jeff, what changed that? Even though it's a warped view, what changed? Jesus died on the cross. The Son of God died on the cross. John never saw that. Barclay's onto something, so I've got to wrap this point up. Jeff, why is John greater than them, but he's not greater than any of the ones who are in this category? Y'all help me out. Help me out. John's sins were covered. Our sins are what? Paid for, washed away, gone. John, by faith, no doubt, went with the sacrifices and had faith in the promises of God and had animal sacrifices. His sins are covered, waiting for the ultimate Lamb of God to actually take away the sin. My sins aren't covered. My sins are gone. John has the Holy Spirit when others didn't. John didn't have the Holy Spirit more than I have the Holy Spirit. And if you're a Christian, he didn't have the Holy Spirit more than you have the Holy Spirit. Watch this. John had a relationship with God. A real one. As much as a man on earth can have a relationship with God in heaven. But do you understand, if we were to look this direction, there is a throne room of God where the, it's the operational room of the universe. There's the throne of God, a real place. And over to his right hand, as if they're looking at us, is Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father. And you know who's in Jesus Christ? All Christians are in the heavenlies. My body is here on this stage, 120 Centerville Road. But spiritually, I'm seated in the heavens, resting in Christ with full access to the Father right beside me. I've got a better relationship with, with God than Jesus. John ever had. This is going to sound blasphemous, and some of you say that's extremely arrogant and disrespectful. No, it's not. Write it down. Our knowledge of God and our knowledge of God's plan is greater than John's. It's just great. I know more about God than you say. You sound extremely arrogant. No. You should know more about God than John did. You say, John knew that Jesus was the Christ. Yeah, you know that too. You know that too, right? Why do we know more? Here it is. Because we have a New Testament, and he didn't. Number one, why is John great? Number two, why is the least in the kingdom greater than John? And then number three, what in the world is this violence in verse 12? Now, here's the hard verse. So now that I've wore your brain out, and you're ready to... Go home and all. Stay with me. Let's go to work. Look at verse 12. What does this mean? All right, you guys are going to see the difference between a direct revelation from God that the prophets in the Bible had and some knucklehead in the New Testament times uh, who hopefully has another lesser gift from God trying to make sense of what was written here. All that's a confession that I'm going to have to cheat and offer you two interpretations of verse 12. And I think both of them could be true. Look at it. 
From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Read it again. From, Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Read the first part of the verse one more time with me if you look at it with your eyes. From the days of John the Baptist until now, as you've read that three times, now four counting the original reading. From the days of John the Baptist until now, as you're reading that, how long of a time period are you thinking in your mind? Because I want you thinking. Let's read the, don't just sit there and say, I'm going to let Jeff tell me what the Bible says. Engage your mind. You should be asking questions. How long is this? Jesus, from the days of John the Baptist until now, so that would be when Jesus was saying this in 26, 27, 28 AD, from the days of John. He's only really talking about 18 to 24 months. He's talking about a very narrow time period. Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist, the start of his ministry here, he goes out and ministers. Oh, by the way, after about a year, he's been in prison for a year now. So from that time till here, verse 12, the kingdom has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. The difficult thing of this verse is, those, is this verb. And by the way, here's the confession. I am not equipped. So I'm going to have to borrow and steal. Man, I read this in English, and I'm like, what in the world does that mean? If it means this, then what, how does it apply? Oh, if it even means that, and this... The difficult thing with the translators, we're reading an English translation of something that was originally written in Greek. And so here's the problem. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has its, these next two words. That verb there, is it in the middle voice or is it in this other voice? And that affects the way. So what I'm telling you is those two words there have actually been translated different ways in different translations. And that's what makes it difficult. Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, in, here in the ESV... The kingdom has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. So, interpretation number one, let me offer the following. By the way, both fit John. Both what I'm going to tell you fit John and his life. Number one, this is talking about opposition to Christ's kingdom. Very simple, just like what it reads. Pretty simple, straightforward. It's opposition to the kingdom of Christ. From the days of John, for these 18, 18 to 24 months, there's been... Violence in the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence, and the violent take it by force. So, Jeff, what are we talking about? You won't need to turn there. I'm going to turn there. But on the screen, you're going to see Luke chapter 7. Okay? Luke chapter 7. Look at verse 29. You're going to see it in brackets. So watch. This is the exact same scene that we've been reading where Jesus is talking about. The, the, his messengers leave. Jesus says all these wonderful things about John. And then he says, those born of women, none greater. And then he says, those least in the kingdom, greater than him. Right on the heels of that, watch verse 29. When all the people, so this is Jesus' audience. Luke adds more that Matthew doesn't. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just. Hey, well then if you say that John is all of that... Then they declared God just having been baptized with the baptism of John. Their mind must have been like, well, God is justified. I'm glad I got baptized by John. We must be on the right track according to Jesus. But verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers, the scribal lawyers, rejected the purpose of God for themselves not having been baptized by John. So the, all the regular people, are, oh, that's great. That validates we did the right thing. But you got these other people that are rejecting John and his message. Why? Do you remember the message? Here we go again. Repent. Jews. Hey, Jews. You better repent. 
Do you remember him saying this? Hey, Jews, if you think for a moment because Abraham is your ancestor that that's going to get you into heaven and get you forgiveness, you have another thought coming. You better repent of your sins. You better repent of yourself. You're not good enough. Abraham's faith will not get you to heaven. You better repent. And the axe is even now being laid to the root. You're in trouble. You better repent and get baptized and go live a life that proves that you really have repented because the kingdom is at hand. That message is received by some, but the proud and the arrogant and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes reject that message. Gentiles get baptized. Pagan Gentiles who want to become Jews, they get baptized. We don't get baptized. We don't believe your message. Jesus says they're in the wrong, and John is in the right. And so they started opposing. And that's what this text here in verse number 12 is talking about. Could I word it this way? The kingdom's prophets in prison. He'll die soon. The kingdom's king. He's going to be crucified about a year later. And then after that, the kingdom's apostles, one by one, they'll be martyred over the next 35, 40 years after this. The kingdom is already suffering violence. We could say the first part of verse number 12 is like corporate violence. And then the second part, the ending of verse 12, the violent take it by force. That's individuals who take their turn persecuting. So there's the group and the society and the leadership. But then there's these individuals like Herod. In other words, what Christ is saying is just in the short time from John and me preaching, the kingdom is already suffering violence that is going to grow. Second interpretation. This is Christ's kingdom advancing. And I need you to hang with me here. So Jeff, what's verse 12 talking about? It's either talking about opposition against Christ's kingdom, just as it sounds here in the ESV, or to be honest, I'm not a good preacher if I don't stand up and say there is another possibility how this verse has been translated otherwise. And so before, you're not going to see it on the screen, but if you have your pen ready, I want to give you some wording. You say, how has this, this phrase been translated otherwise? Where it says the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. How else has it been translated? Watch. So not, don't write yet. It has also been translated as, quote, the kingdom. So don't write this one yet. Has been coming violently. From the days of John till now, the kingdom has been coming violently. The NIV, back in the 1984 version, which they admittedly did change in 2011 to be a little more in line with this one. But watch, this phrase has also been translated. Write this one down. You're not going to see it on the screen. It's also been translated that the kingdom of heaven, quote, has been forcefully advancing. This is a legitimate option. The ki- Jesus, is this what Jesus meant? The kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. And, to continue, dot, 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 forceful men lay hold of it. The kingdom has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Forceful men lay hold of the kingdom. The kingdom is advancing forcefully and forceful men lay hold of it. What does that mean? Can I propose this? Is what Christ's saying in verse 12 about the advancement of his kingdom, saying, hey, guys, listen, in just a short amount of time, mainly between John's preaching and my preaching, 
And then he sends out the 12 on their assignment, groups of twos. He also sends out 70 disciples, also in groups of two. Just in a short amount of time, the kingdom is advancing, and forceful men are laying hold of the kingdom. In a moment, we'll have this note up. What this would mean is that advancing, it's talking about, listen, advancing Christ's kingdom by boldly proclaiming Jesus by the power of God, here's the key, with a willingness to disrupt all of the norms in society. Is that what Jesus is saying? Just in a short amount of time, there's been this bold proclamation about Jesus in the power of God, this forceful power of God that is taking place, and it's coming with an absolute willingness to disrupt all the norms. Just like, and if, it, if anything describes John the Baptist, that does. This guy don't care about the norms. Uh, that's improper. You really shouldn't say. You know, no one's ever said that. Be quiet. It's the message from God. Repent. Get baptized. Live a life that proves you've repented. Very forceful. So, Jeff, what's this second phrase? Forceful men lay hold of it. Ah, this is important. Could I propose to you? Someone in this room right now Someone perhaps watching online, live right now, this needs to describe you. It very well could be that Jesus is saying the kingdom is advancing forcefully. And oh, by the way, here's how it happens. While some are boldly proclaiming Jesus, forceful men lay hold of it. Jeff, what does that mean? Watch. The only ones who get into the kingdom are those who are willing to have their lives totally disrupted by Jesus and his message. They're the only ones who get in. It forcefully comes, and those who end up in the kingdom forcefully lay hold of it. You say, hold on, Jeff, did you just say the only ones who get into the kingdom are those who are willing to have their lives totally disrupted by Jesus? Yes. Yes. Everybody else who dances around and thinks about it, and maybe one day, some way, somehow, right before I die, I'll say a prayer, you're not getting in. The only people who get in are those who say, Lord, I've made a mess. I have nothing to give you. I need you to come in. And I know you're going to change everything, but make it happen. And they forcefully lay hold of this kingdom. They will not. You say, I don't think anybody would do that. Oh, absolutely they will. Because for them, they're so desperate for relief from conviction, so desperate for salvation, so desperate for forgiveness, for eternal life. They won't let anything stop them, guys. I don't think there's anyone, I'm pretty sure, no one in here knew me in 1979. I was nine years old. I'm telling you, you would be hard-pressed to find a more shy kid than me. You just wouldn't find anybody more shy than me. And I remember sitting in that little bitty church called Mount Olive, facing the pulpit. I would have been right back in this little section. It's about not even as deep as our post right there, shorter than that. And I remember after being convicted Monday night and Tuesday night at Bible camp, it was that Wednesday night, and I sat there and I was thinking, what is this guy going to think and what's this guy's going to think? Everybody's going to look at me. Listen, me walking to the front and bowing down over here, that is not what saved me, but I want to tell you, I just felt so compelled. I've got to make my faith. I've got to seal it. I've got to make it certain, and I need to make this thing known. The scaredest, most shyest kid in West North Carolina got up and walked down in front of everybody. Why? Because you're not going to stop me. I'm taking this thing. I've got to have it. This is urgent. Have you ever just had to forcefully take the kingdom like nothing's going to stop me? And then once you're in, 
The kingdom is forcibly advancing. How? By use, Christians using every means to share the gospel. Every effective means. Every effective. Not taking little five and six-year-old kids and grabbing them by the neck and forcing their head down. And you're, you're going to get saved today and you're going to pray after me, all right? That's not effective. Every effective mean. 1 Corinthians chapter number 9, verse 24, Paul says, Don't you know that everybody that runs in a race, they all run, but only one receives the prize. Run to win the prize. Hey, you, listen, some of you are like, I, I've really been challenged recently, and I'm trying to tell somebody, I've got somebody in mind, I'm trying to share the gospel. Hey, listen, when you're sharing the gospel, share it forcefully. Share it to win them to Christ. Don't invite them. Would you listen to the gospel? Listen, listen. Have them. Would you listen to the gospel? And when you're done, invite them to get saved. You can't make them get saved, but invite them. Do you want to get saved? Do you want to confess your sins? Do you want to trust Jesus? Salvation is only by faith. It can't have no works in it. Salvation is only by faith. But that faith can't be forced. Okay, Jeff, can you, can you force? No, you can't believe for anybody. You can't force the faith. But I think what Jesus may be saying here is John is an example of how to forcefully advance the kingdom. You say, Jeff, what is it? Everybody listen. Just shoot straight. Give the straight gospel. What if they get offended? There are certain things I do, and by the way, I'm not the only one. Many do this. But there are certain things that in the ministry I just don't do without including the gospel. Say, so like what? I don't do a funeral without including the gospel. Just don't do it. Hey, do you mind getting up and saying, just, you know, can you take about eight, nine minutes and maybe say some nice things about our loved one? Number one, have you ever heard me talk? Eight, nine minutes, you forget that. I'll try to say some nice things if I can, but you need to know this. It's going to end up at the God. Oh, no, no, we got another main speaker. That's fine. I'll let him do the main job, but it's going to be in what I say, too. At a wedding. Don't ask me to do a wedding if you don't want the gospel included. At a baptism. You say, Jeff, we have these all the time. You say the same thing over and over. As long as I'm here, we're always going to have the gospel included. We're going to say what baptism is and what it isn't. Even at a baby dedication. Come on, really? That little overkill, Jeff. You're a little too ambitious there. You need to calm down. It's just a baby dedication. Just say a nice little prayer. We can't go visit someone's terminal loved one who's about to die without sharing the gospel. And I know someone probably hears that list. Funerals, weddings, baptism, dedication. They're dying. The loved one's dying. Don't talk about that. What are you doing? Talking about sin and judgment and dying. Poor person's dying. Their, their loved one over there, their, their loved one's dying and they're having to listen to you talk about that. At a funeral, isn't it enough they've lost their loved one and now you're talking about this? Can't we just have a nice celebration of baptism? People had family tune in today. Or a baby dedicated. They specially invited loved ones. They're not going to like that. Just, just keep it a nice celebration. Hey, these are the times to preach the gospel. These are the occasions. The goal is never to embarrass anyone. But if you're taking notes, write this down. The gospel requires us to give a straightforward, even forceful approach to the gospel like John did. Even if people are offended. Everybody needs forced to be face-to-face -face with their sin and its consequences. Everyone needs to be told, you are not, not going to be good enough. You can never be good enough. No matter if you never sin again, if you stop today and never sin again, you've already sinned too much. You have a sin nature. 
God must judge that, but he poured out his judgment on Christ. You must receive the Lord Jesus Christ. Everyone needs faced with this truth. Trusting Jesus is the only way to heaven. Everybody's got to hear that. Everybody needs to hear this. Salvation is only by faith. Only by faith. But salvation must never be assumed in anyone's life who hasn't changed. Everybody needs to hear that. Well, that's kind of offensive. Is someone in your life that you need to forcefully advance the kingdom to them? Can't make them get saved. But can you plead with them and speak clearly, lastly? Verse 13, 14, 15. Was John the Baptist Elijah? This is our last question. It's the briefest. Was John the Baptist Elijah? So, Jeff, what in the world are you talking about? Verse number 13. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And then Jesus says, oh, by the way, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. If you're willing to accept it, then John the Baptist is Elijah who is to come. One more time. Turn back to Malachi. Just a few pages back. The last two verses of the Old Testament. Would you look at literally the last two verses of the Old Testament? It's Malachi chapter 4. I have my Bible open. You'll only see verse 5 and 6 on the screen because they're the last two verses. But if you have your Bible open, look up at verse 1. It'll help make sense. Malachi, the the last book of the Old Testament, again, one of the last prophets. There'll be a 400-year gap now, kind of a time period of silence. Malachi writes, and by the way, the Jews are very familiar with this prophecy. Malachi says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven. There's a day coming, it's burning. It's like an oven, it has a fire inside. When all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts. There's this day coming. Verse 5. The last prophecy of the Old Testament says this. Behold, I will send you. God says, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Verse 1. Well, what's he going to do? He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. My point is not to tear through what that all means. It's just to say this. The Jews know that the last thing the Old Testament says is before this judgment that's followed by this kingdom, the prophet Elijah will come. And someone may say, wait a minute. The prophet Elijah didn't do a time scale, but I'm pretty sure he didn't die. But he was translated some 350, 400 years before Malachi. Some 750, 800 years before Jesus says this in Matthew chapter number 11. So what's going on here? Do you understand that Jews today, who, who perform, devout Jews who have... Passover meals, they leave an empty chair. Why do they leave an empty chair? Because symbolically, for Elijah to come, we're waiting for him. We're waiting for the Messiah when Elijah comes. Last verse. Last verse is John. You'll see it on the screen. Chapter 1, verse 21. Watch this. Just before verse 21 was verse 20. John confessed to priests and Levites from Jerusalem, and he confessed and and did not deny, so catch it, he confessed, I am not the Christ. So here comes a a delegation from Jerusalem. John, mind just a minute. Well, you're preaching up a storm. (laughs) We've baptized a lot of folks. What are you doing? Who in the world are you? I'm not the Christ. You're not the Christ. You got a lot of people talking, a lot of people think, I am not the Christ. Verse 21. And they ask him, then what then? Are you Elijah? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. 
Are you the prophet? Moses says there's going to be this prophet like him, and we better listen to him. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then what in the world does Jesus mean in verse 13, 14? If you'll receive it, then he is Elijah. Ask John, and he says, oh, I'm not Elijah. Well, maybe John's confused, and he's just not up to speed, and Jesus knows more. And he says, he might be Elijah. What's going on? So here's kind of my wrap-up this morning. And we're not going to finish on the more preachy point that we just had. It's this more teachy. I'm going to propose to you that John the Baptist is a pre-fulfillment and a partial fulfillment of a later, fuller fulfillment of the Elijah prophecy in Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. Jeff, what in the world does that mean? So I'm looking now at verse 14. If you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Guys, here's what happens. Jesus is saying, if, if, that's a key word, if this generation of Jews accepts John the Baptist's message about me, Christ, and then puts their faith in me, then to you he will be Elijah, and he will fulfill the Elijah prophecy. You say, but Jeff, they, they didn't do that. No, nope. because they didn't have faith and they were not teachable, they did not have a teachable spirit, and they rejected John and Jesus because they rejected John. Had they accepted John's message, they would have known who Christ was and they would have followed Christ. But because they rejected that, since the majority of the nation rejects John and his preaching and Jesus, then, you say, what's going to take place? Then the literal Elijah will return to this earth in the tribulation period. I wouldn't die for this, but I'm 99% sure that Revelation chapter number 11 is talking about these two witnesses who will die. It's appointed unto men once to die, and after this, the judgment. Elijah never died before. He was translated, but the cues and clues in Revelation chapter number 11, the first 19 verses there, seem pretty clear that these two witnesses who are going to come in the last three and a half years of the tribulation, one of them is going to be Elijah, and they're going to have a very powerful witness. So here's my point. Jesus is saying, hey, nation of Israel, if you will accept John the Baptist's message and me, then he will fulfill the, the Elijah prophecy. But since you've rejected him, then the actual literal Elijah will come. So here's the last thing. So Jeff, hold on, time out. A while ago you said John the Baptist is a pre-impartial fulfillment. That doesn't sound like pre-impartial. My offering of a solution there is the following. Elijah is literally going to come back. He is. But in the meantime, all who have ears to hear is a gift of faith from God. And they hear John the Baptist's message. And they end up putting their faith in the Christ that John says is Jesus Christ. And then they follow the Christ and they put their faith because he says that his death on the cross saves them from their sin. In the meantime, those who do, they're a very small minority, but those who have ears to hear and do receive John's message, then John has already come in the spirit and power of Elijah as was predicted in Luke chapter 1 verse 17. The literal is coming because the majority rejected. But those of us who have believed, John's already fulfilled the Elijah prophecy in our life. And we are ushered in to the kingdom in a spiritual kingdom 
that is awaiting the ultimate consummation. Who are the ones who's going to be in the thousand-year reign and in eternity in heaven? Those who've already heard the message of John and other New Testament teachers and preachers. We've heard Christ. We've accepted Him. We're already in the kingdom spiritually. And we know more than John the Baptist did. Would you bow your heads just, just for a moment? Just for a moment. So in a moment we'll pray. Before we do, can I remind you of just some basic things from today's text? So now is not a time to, okay, transition to what I'm going to do this afternoon. Now is a time. I'm going to invite everyone to ask the Lord, Lord, help me now to tie this together, this message, in just a couple of things. Can I begin here? Ladies and gentlemen, according to Jesus, John the Baptist is a prophet. And he's more than a prophet. Be honest. Have you heeded John's call to confess your sins, to acknowledge your sins, to repent of your sin? Have you heeded? If you're one of those that would say, I have ears to hear. I believe that. Then can you honestly in your heart say, I have heeded the message of John the Baptist. And that's why... I've heard about Jesus and I put my faith and trust in Jesus as my Savior. If you have, then you are even now spiritually in the kingdom. But if you have not done that, then you need to know that you will experience the fire of judgment. I just can't put it any other way. You will, if you reject John's message and the person of Jesus as the Christ, the Lord... If you reject Jesus as the Savior and you choose to go in eternity with your own goodness and your good works and you're a good person, then you will experience the fire of judgment because you're arrogant as Malachi 4 says. That's just being blunt and can we even use the word forceful? That's just the way it is. You are choosing judgment over Jesus and you will pay for that. Can I plead with you? Plead with you. Don't let anything keep you from coming to Christ. Forcefully lay hold of the salvation. Listen, the Bible says if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God says if you'll confess and trust me, I'll forgive you, I'll cleanse you. The Bible says whosoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible says... Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Somebody in this room, no doubt. Somebody watching on the, online, no doubt. You have never done that. Can I plead with you? Don't just listen to the gospel. Act on it. Right now, get in a conversation. Just you and God. Right where you're sitting. Right now. God, I've made a mess. I am a sinner. I know I'm not righteous. But I believe Talk to God. Tell Him that you and mean it. Tell Him you believe that Jesus' death was enough to pay for your sins. And just tell God, since you're offering it, God, I take Jesus as my Savior right now. Why don't you do it? Lay hold of it. And let Jesus disrupt your life. The shyest kid at Bible camp in 1979 now is a public speaker. Preaching the Bible. He disrupted my life. But I wouldn't change a thing. 
Just before I pray, Christians, you say, Jeff, I'm already in the kingdom. I know I've trusted Christ. Would you take just a moment, just you and the Lord, really do this right now. God, pray with me to God, you to God. Father, thank you that we live when we live. Pray with me. God, you are sovereign. You set the boundaries of our life. You chose the day we would live. Father, I thank you that you let me be born where I was, in the, in the family that I was, to the parents I was born to, that sent me to the Bible camp where I heard the Bible. Lord, I thank you that everything you've done in my life. Lord, thank you that we live in an age of greater enlightenment than even John had over those in the Old Testament. Lord, thank you that we have the New Testament. Thank you that we know you and things about you that they did not know. And Lord, it is real. And God, we've taken it for granted. Forgive us, God. Thank you for this day we live. And then lastly, is the Lord bringing anyone to your mind that you need to advance the kingdom more forcefully? Not making them get saved, but shooting straighter Speak clearly about sin. Somebody come in your mind like, God, I've got to be more blunt about sin and judgment and Jesus' death and your love and grace. Just receiving it. God, help me to be found faithful. Let's pray. Father, would you let us be found faithful this week? Lord, let us forcefully advance your kingdom. Lord, I pray if anyone, no doubt someone listening is not a true Christian, Lord, give them faith to confess their sins. God, give them faith. Even in this message that seems to be about John, Lord, we know because he needed to decrease and he wanted Jesus to increase, it always comes back to your son. It always does. Lord, give those people faith. And Lord, if someone's here today and they're just confused and they don't know that they're on the way to heaven, they, they really are confused, then Lord, let them... Come up and talk to us. And God, give us a window of time to sit and open the Bible and help them understand by your grace. I pray that you would give that to us. Lord, let us be found faithful. You are good. Let us love you this week and live like it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your attention, your patience. I pray you'll have a great, great Sunday afternoon.